For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflicts that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Imagine that you wake up from a peaceful sleep and you hear the sound of jeering. People are shouting at you. And as you look around, you see that there's a guy running towards you, brandishing a metal bar. You don't particularly, you can't quite work out what he's doing. What is it that you're going to do in that moment? You're going to run, aren't you? I imagine you're going to run. Uh, But imagine you took a moment just to have a little bit more of a a look around, and you realize that you're on some sort of track. It's a running track. And the people who are jeering, they're not jeering, they're cheering. And the guy with the metal bar, well, it's not a weapon. It's a baton. And he's handing it to you. You're probably going to be running, aren't you? But it's a different kind of run. Tonight's passage is a little bit like that relay baton being passed from one person to the next, from Paul to the Philippians. As we've been saying all the way through this series, Paul is on death row, arrested because of trumped-up charges, with a very real possibility of death. And he's optimistic that he might get out. We just heard that. Verse 25 of our reading, verse 25, convinced of this, Paul says, I know that I will remain and continue with you all, for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Paul has this plan to come and visit the Philippians, but he knows that he might not. He knows that he might stay in prison. He knows that he might end up dying. And so he turns to them, verse 27, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm. And on he goes. And when he says only at the beginning of this passage, he's not saying this is the only thing that you are allowed to do. He's saying that while he has got various ideas and plans, various things he would like to do, this is what he wants for them. And it's what he wants for us. 
We're starting the beginning of Paul's central section in the book of Philippians. The big ideas of this passage come up again at the end of chapter 3. They're written on the right-hand side of the handout there. Citizenship, uh, which is slightly hidden in our reading, but we'll see it in a moment. Salvation, destruction, a standing firm, striving side by side. They all come up here, and they're going to come up again when we get to the end of chapter 3 and the beginning of chapter 4. Philippians is a carefully constructed book, and Paul has marked the bookends of this central section to make sure that we're paying attention and to mark out uh, this chunk. And having spent some time last week explaining his thought process, his own uh, life-transforming motto, this week he turns to his readers. He turns to us. It's as though he's in a relay race. And as Paul takes what might be his final steps at the end of his stint, this passage is the waving of the baton. I realize really runners don't really wave the baton if they're doing it properly, do they? It's the extension of the baton. It's handing it forward. Your turn. Whether I've got another lap or not, this is for you. But he doesn't yet use the language of a race. That'll come later in the book. At this point, he uses the language of citizenship. Uh, which is our first point. We are gospel citizens. I said it was a little bit hidden. Our reading, uh, if you were following it along, verse 27 says, let your manner of life be worthy. But if you look at the footnote, footnote one, you'll see it could just as easily be translated, behave as citizens worthy of the gospel of Christ. And because it's the same idea that will come up in chapter three, uh, chapter three, verse 20, our citizenship is in heaven. I think it's right for us to see citizens as the big idea. Paul wants to see them, uh, wants them to see themselves as gospel citizens. And that's a significant thing for him to say to the Philippian church because, well, they of all people had a particular, a particular sense of the significance of citizenship. Citizenship was a really big deal in the first century, particularly being a Roman citizen. Uh, maybe you know from Acts 22 how Paul played the citizen card the fact that he was a Roman citizen, to get out of being lynched. Having a Roman passport was a ticket to first-class treatment within the empire. People would pay a lot of money for it. And we learned from Acts 16 that Philippi was a Roman colony. So these guys, of all people, would have understood the value of Roman citizenship. But even though Paul himself was a Roman citizen, he wanted them to place their identity elsewhere. And not in Rome but in the gospel of the Lord Jesus. Behave as citizens worthy of the gospel. In the gospel, Jesus has made us, every one of us who is a Christian, a citizen of heaven. By living the life that we should have lived and dying the death we should have died, Jesus has offered to us forgiveness. He has taken the punishment we deserve and he has opened the way into heaven. All who trust in him are given a new identity, a new citizenship. I decided to bring in my passport this evening. Can you, um, can you read, read my citizenship on there? No, okay. I brought in a bigger one here. Can you see that a bit better? You're all laughing at the photo. You're not supposed to smile in a passport photo. Can you read that? British citizen, there you go. I am a British citizen. It used to be the case that having a British passport would have given you the best access in the world. I'm told now that Japanese passport is the one that gets you into the most countries. But Paul says the citizenship that really matters is the gospel. 
rather than saying British citizen or American citizen or Australian citizen, wherever you're from, well, actually, it should say, you may not have read this quite as clearly. Can you read that again for us? Heavenly citizen. citizen. It's just two different ends of the... (laughs) But that's what our passport should say. Well, I mean, obviously, don't write that on your passport application form. But do write it on your hearts. If you're a believer, you are a citizen of heaven. And isn't that the citizenship that actually we should all want? Sure, it might be hard if you've got citizenship in heaven to get a visa for some countries. It might close down some opportunities if you are publicly uh, committed to being a follower of Jesus. But it opens up the greatest opportunity. It means that when we go home, we're going to heaven. If I can push the analogy a little bit too far, when it comes to border control in heaven, we get to skip the queue because we're locals. So many people in the world are scrambling around to define their own identity, struggling to find something that makes them feel unique and yet at the same time connects them into a community. And so they'll define themselves by maybe their job or their class or their lifestyle choice. Maybe that's the way that you're currently inclined to define yourself. Well, Jesus offers us an identity better than any other. One that preserves our uniqueness and our difference, but which gathers us under the greatest of umbrellas, citizens of the gospel. And that's how Christians should view ourselves. It's how we should define our sense of self. And it is how we should determine the way that we behave Which takes us to the next point. Uh, There is a right way to do this. Uh, A right way to do this. Just as any identity determines the way that somebody behaves. Well, so it is with gospel citizens. Look at verse 27 again. He says, only let your manner of life be worthy or uh, behave as citizens worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. You see, uh, Paul is not describing how to become a gospel citizen. That's really important. The Philippians have already put their trust in Jesus. They've already got a gospel passport, if I can put it that way. This is about being who they are. It's about living in a way that is fitting. It's like wearing the team colors. And that's not what makes you part of the team, but it reflects the team that you're on. Only instead of particular colors, it's particular behaviors. Firstly, standing firm, verse 27. Standing firm. Keep on believing what Jesus has taught us. Don't let go of the gospel. The Christian message has always been assaulted from all sides. From the earliest moments of Jesus' ministry, Through the lives of his apostles and down throughout the ages, there have always been those who oppose Jesus' teaching. As some of us saw in Mark last week, or will see in Mark this week, there is a constant pressure for us to give up on the gospel. Indeed, Paul's account in Philippians last week showed how hard it can be to be a Christian. The constant pressure to give up or to to change what we're saying. For some of us, it will be the temptation to abandon the Christian faith altogether. For others of us, maybe the temptation to change the message that we believe in so that we're actually not listening to Jesus' message anyway. 
Paul urges them to stand firm. That if you've got a gospel passport, don't take it for granted. Keep hold of it. Grasp it tightly. Stand firm. Indeed, not just stand firm, but strive. End of verse 27 again. That you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. It's not just about holding ground. It's about making progress for the sake of the gospel. We're not just interested on ourselves keeping on going. We want others to discover the good news of Jesus as well. It's as though Paul is adopting a kind of military metaphor and pictures us like an army. We're not just trying to hold the line to preserve what we've got. We want to advance. That's why so often we're talking about praying and looking for opportunities to speak to others about Jesus. It's why Dan and the others were talking about this event coming up, why lots of us will be involved in the Week of Talks events from the 15th, 16th, and 17th. Is that right? 16th, 17th, and 18th of May. It's why we're always being encouraged to take opportunities as they come up day by day to speak to people about Jesus' wonderful news. As those with a gospel passport, we're not to take it for granted, and we're not to keep it to ourselves. If others have the chance to gain a home in heaven, don't we want them to enjoy it? If others have the chance to meet Jesus, don't we want them to do so? And not just on our own, but side by side. Look again at the end of verse 27, uh, that I may hear of you that you're standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Do you see how much he emphasizes this sense that we're in it together? It's no good all of us going off on our own, committed to different projects, or we're still competing against one another. This is a project that we all need to be committed to together. And my predecessor, Charlie Screen, used to extend that military metaphor and talked about it like a Roman shield wall. One of the reasons the Roman army, I'm told, was so effective was because of their military strategy, in particular, that formation that we'll all find familiar if we learnt about it at school, those tortoise formations with all the shields around. As their shield assembled, uh, you see these great rectangular shields joined together in lines, and then all the way on, uh, across the top and around the sides, it was impossible for arrows to get in. You're all looking like you've never seen this before. Do people know what I'm talking about? Oh, good, some nodding, that's reassuring. Because it's a useless illustration if you've never seen that before. But if you have seen that, can you see the, the sense that you've all got a part to play? Everybody are getting in line, putting their shield up, standing together. Well, so also in the Christian life. We're in this together. The Christian life, if I can put it this way, it's not a solo sport, but a team game. Coming out of lockdown, lots of us got into the habit of approaching Christianity as solo Christians. And maybe you're watching this from home or on catch-up. And, well, you've lost the sense that you need other Christians. Maybe even before COVID, we, we saw ourselves as independent believers. I can do this alone. Well, that can't be right. This passage is a reminder that the work we've been given to do is a team effort. That even as you guys here in the building, uh, even though you are here, this is a call to line up with everybody else and to work together. It doesn't work if there's gaps in the shield wall, does it? It doesn't work to be one person alone. And that's true on the bigger scale as well. 
Even as a church family of St. Helens, when we have had to voice our opposition to movements in the Church of England, declaring our broken partnership with the House of Bishops or our inability to work with those who've abandoned Jesus' teaching, we're still pursuing ways of working with others. Luke and William and others were at the Global Anglican Futures Conference just the other week, aligning ourselves with literally millions of other Christians worldwide. Because the gospel is not a solo sport, off to do our own thing. It is a team game. We need to do this side by side. We're in this together. Of course, that doesn't make it easy. As we'll think a bit more about next week, striving side by side, getting on with other Christians, it can be hard. Don't look at your neighbor at this moment. But also, as Paul has said many times in this letter, it involves suffering. But in fact, that is the third team color, if I can put it that way, suffering. Look again at verse 27, halfway through. I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This, he says, is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ... You should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. It's clear, isn't it? Paul expects the Philippians to suffer. Might be something they were going through at this particular moment in time. Might be something that they were going to be coming to pretty soon. But Paul definitely says it's something they should expect. And yet he doesn't suggest that's a particular problem. On the contrary, he encourages them to face it head on with a fearless attitude. Verse 28, not frightened in anything, by your opponents. When Paul talks about suffering here, he's not talking about mere resistance. You know when you're talking to somebody about about Christianity and they say to you, why do you believe in the Christian message? Let me say, that is not opposition. That's an opportunity. They're literally asking you to explain to them the message of Jesus. Now, when Paul is talking about opposition, he's talking about real persecution. People losing their job, their position in society, their money, even their freedom. That's what Paul is facing at this moment, isn't it? As he languishes on death row. And that it is the sort of thing that has been faced by the majority of Christians in the majority of countries for the majority of the last 2,000 years. And it is still the case today. I was speaking to Laura, one of the students, just last week about how her dad became a Christian He was born into a Muslim family in the Middle East and ended up reading the Bible and was compelled by the teaching of Jesus. But becoming a Christian for him meant facing opposition from the state, even his own family. When he became a believer, he was handed over to the security services and beaten and tortured. He was even put into solitary confinement for almost a year. He faced extraordinary suffering. Do ask Laura about it more. And yet his perspective was clear. As he put it, I couldn't deny the one that gave me life. And that is not an account from a few centuries ago. That is basically today. And the thing is, I know that I am not ready for that kind of suffering. I'm not even ready to to face it at all, let alone without fear. And Paul says, not frightened in anything by your opponents. How on earth do we get to that stage? I think the answer is verse 29. Look down at verse 29. Paul says, For it has been granted to you 
that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. It has been granted to you. God has granted this. This team color of suffering. It's not the accidental consequence of God taking his eye off the ball. Somehow, and for some reason, God chooses to grant us suffering and opposition. It is all under his sovereign hand. Indeed, as Paul says in verse 29, it is for the sake of Christ. We're suffering for his sake. Somehow he will use it to advance Jesus' kingdom. Let me be clear. It's not that we should pursue opposition to try and be as obstinate as we possibly can until people really start to kick back. No. Nor is it denying that suffering is hard, that it is painful, that we suffer because we still live in a fallen world. There's much more we could say about suffering and will say about suffering later in the series. Please, if you want to, grab me today. Come and ask me a question or save it up for two weeks' time and we'll have a question time. But the point here is to say that we shouldn't run away from suffering. We shouldn't assume that if our gospel striving is hard, that it starts to meet opposition, that we've got something wrong. You know that reflex response? Whenever you encounter pain, you pull your hand back. We can have the same kind of approach to any kind of suffering in gospel ministry. We're not to let hardship or persecution become an excuse for drawing back from the work that Jesus has given us to do. A closed door is not always a sign that it's the wrong thing to do. In fact, it might be God's very means to reach the nations. That was the case for Paul, wasn't it? As he stood firm, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and suffered... It led to more and more people hearing the gospel. If you were here last week, maybe you remember verse 12. You could flip back and look at verse 12. Paul says this, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me, by which he means imprisonment and being on death row, what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. Paul's suffering was a kind of massive advert, alerting the imperial guard even to the gospel. And if you turn back to today's passage, Paul tells us that that is exactly how it is supposed to work. Look again at verse 27. Again, halfway through the verse. Stand firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God's. As we wear the team colors, standing firm, striving, side by side, and even suffering, we show what team we're on, and therefore what team they're on. As we wear the team colors, the very colors that Christ himself wore, well, we show that we belong to him, and we show them that they do not belong to him, that he is the one that they're opposing. Don Carson, as ever, puts it well in his book, Basics for Believers. He writes this, your changing character, your united stand in defense of the gospel, your ability to withstand with meekness and without fear the opposition that you must endure, they constitute a sign. That sign speaks volumes, both to the outside world and to the Christian community. It is a sign of judgment against the world that is mounting the opposition. It is a sign of assurance that these believers really are the people of God and will be saved on the last day. Live in a manner worthy of the gospel. 
behave as a citizen worthy of the gospel. Paul says there is a right way to do this. And as I've said on the handout, if there's a right way to do it, there's a wrong way. That is, if it's possible to do it well, it's possible to do it badly. If there's a manner that is fitting, there is also a manner that is unfitting. And the question constantly comes to me, but what if we don't? And I want to say, but what if we do? Paul wants to show us that those with a gospel passport, as those who are citizens of heaven, this is the better way to live. This is the excellent way to live. This is first and foremost what Paul has been talking about when he prayed earlier in the book, that we would approve what is excellent. This is what they're to approve. He wants them to identify this and see that this is a better way to live. Over the past few weeks, I've been illustrating it by uh, talking about approving premium chocolate and the Hotel Chocolat that I've been bringing in, hoping that I might be able to claim it on expenses. And I've been suggesting that the, the, the way we might approve excellent chocolate is the way we might approve this excellent life. Who wants to experience the premium option this week? Matt, do this, right? <laughs> this is the premium option. That's what you were actually thinking of, wasn't it? When you raised your hand, you were like, yeah, I want that. And Paul's point is to say that now this is our turn. Finally, and more briefly, our turn. It's our turn. A return to the relay race analogy. And it's, well, it's reached the stage where it's our leg. Christ was the one who ran it first, standing firm in his teaching, proclaiming the gospel even when he got on the wrong side of the authorities, side by side with the apostles, even when they were, well, pretty bad company, suffering the greatest suffering of all. It's the pattern that Paul himself followed as he took up the baton, standing firm and holding fast to the gospel even when it got him thrown in prison, side by side with the Philippians, even counting their needs more important than his own, suffering numerous assaults and imprisonment, and even on death row as he was writing this. Paul has been wearing Christ's colors since the start of his ministry, but now he doesn't know how it will go with him. He's not even sure he'll make it back to Philippi. And so he says, I'm hoping to come to you, but verse 27, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are doing this. The very things that I've just described doing. He even talks about their suffering as though it's part of this baton that he's passing to them. Look at verse 29. It's been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. It's as though he's saying, I've been running with this baton for so long, but you're on the same team, and now it's your turn. And yet, of course, it's not their turn anymore, is it? The first group of people to receive this letter have run their course. And those to whom they handed the baton have run their course. And those to whom they handed the baton have run their course. This baton has been passed down through the last 2,000 years. And now it's come to us, to you. Don't dismiss this as William's job or Luke's or mine. Don't assume that someone else is going to do it. Remember, this is a team sport. We've all got our part to play. Every one of us in the shield wall. It's our turn. And I'm reminded of the numerous ways that it's been expressed by people in this room 
a student who was telling me this week about being asked by a lecturer in front of everybody, do you believe what the Bible says? While he was sat next to somebody who he knew that was opposed to the gospel. Or the student whose witness to the gospel got her threatened with expulsion from her course at university. Or the guy who sacrificed promotion after promotion in order to ensure that he was still able to serve at church. The Christian whose standard of living has not changed in decades, even though he's risen to one of the highest positions in the city. Or another whose hefty Christmas bonus never made it into his personal bank account because he always shared it around gospel workers with whom he was in partnership. Or the worker who reduced how many days she was working in order to volunteer part-time, reaching out to university students on campus. You could multiply the examples just from this room, praise God. But there's still gaps in the shield wall. Are you going to approve what is excellent? Will you receive the baton? Our last song tonight is a call to all of God's people, Zion, to every gospel citizen, every one of us with a gospel passport to take up this charge. Awake, awake, O Zion, and clothe yourself with strength. Wake up, because there's a guy running towards you with a metal bar in his hand. He's not going to hit you with it. He's going to pass it to you. It's not a weapon. It's the gospel. And it's our turn. Lead us in a prayer. Our Father, we praise you for the example of the Apostle Paul even more for the wonderful example of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ, who stood firm, who strove side by side, and who suffered. Thank you, our Father, for extending this baton to us, for calling us into your kingdom as citizens of the gospel. And we thank you, our Father, for giving us this opportunity to behave as citizens worthy of the gospel, Please, would you help us to approve what is excellent, to take up the baton and to run. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.